0: testing testing check check you there tim sure am To Trinity Radio, I'm Braxton Hunter, and along with me today is the incredible Tim Hull. Tim, I am so glad that you are here, man. This is like my first time getting to meet you kind of face-to-face virtually, but thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Well, Braxton, first, I just wanna say thank you so much for your ministry, your channel. I have watched several of your videos, debates with Kurt Date, conversation channel regular with Jonathan Pritchard, and your debate reviews are all top-notch. It is an honor to be on your channel and uh, to have this conversation with you. I really appreciate it. Well,
0: I appreciate you, but you are bringing like the capturing Christianity style lighting and uh, cinematography, and it makes me look washed out and terrible. But hey, that's that's all right. Uh, but man, I am so Cameron's glad great. Th- we love Cameron. <laughs> yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah. So listen, I-, I am so glad to have you here. For those that don't know, um, Tim is not only an incredibly accomplished apologist who has done debates and things like that himself, and uh, but, he- but he is also the executive producer of One Minute. Apologist, And for those of you who've been in watching worldview discussions on YouTube for very long, you can't go very far without running into Bobby Conway and the one minute apologist. And um, and, and Tim's the one that kind of makes all that run smoothly. But what else are you involved in, Tim? Tell us about your ministry your your um, whatever you're doing online, the one minute apologist, whatever you want to talk about, man.
1: Yeah, yeah. I work primarily with churches and parachurch ministries, uh, you know, helping them do social media, streaming content. That's one of the reasons I had the background I do, content creation, uh, most notably, like you said, with women apologists. Uh, but I also work for uh, campus ministry Ratio Christi, and Ratio Christi seeks to give scientific, philosophical, historical reasons to believe that Christianity is true. And that's really where I got my start in apologetics, was I started working with Ratio Christi back in 2014, um, was kind of self-taught in a lot of things and then started doing campus ministry with Ratio Christi and have been doing that uh, full-time. It started in 2015, went part-time in 2016 when I moved to Charlotte and now just kind of work for them uh, here and there doing various things with Ratio Christi. But like I said, One Minute Apologist is definitely where I hang my hat most of the time, and doing executive producing with Bobby is a blast. I love it.
0: Man, that is so great. That That is such a powerful ministry, and I can't tell you how many times it's really helped me just to get that nutshell um, answer that One Minute Apologist gives and exposing me to, you know, uh, individuals, uh, apologists that I wouldn't know otherwise. But hey, let's jump into this, man, because I wanna be sensitive to your time. And again, I do so appreciate you coming on the show. But um, so there is this YouTuber, one of the things we do on this channel, by the way. Um, I want to be known, I want our channel to be known as, if no other channel is, which there are other channels like this, but I want us to be known as a channel that loves atheists and all unbelievers and that presents everything with a spirit of humility and love and all those kind of things. And so anything that we say, and and I know from correspondence we've had, Tim, that you share this sentiment, anything we say about the individuals that we're responding to is aimed at um, the content, not the person. Um, we don't want to attack persons, but we can respond to content because content, uh, the, the, the ideas are not persons. And some of the worst things that have happened in human history have happened because people were afraid to attack um, ideas that are wrong ideas or bad ideas or dangerous ideas. And so today we're going to do that with an atheist, uh, I think an atheist named Bionic Dance. And I, this channel, a lot of what we've done over the past let's say year and a half on this channel has been responding primarily to atheists, although we responded to people of other, um, worldviews as well. But, uh, so I've tried to hit every major atheist YouTuber out there in responding to some of their most popular videos, but with bionic dance, I, I was not familiar enough or, or hadn't really uh, don't know too much about her. And so, um, but the other day there was a discussion online about some video she made and, Uh, you expressed interest in helping me respond. So I know that Bionic Dance is here. And so I just want to say that um, we're glad you're here. We want you to feel welcome. And we hope that you accept this in a friendly uh, spirit. So with that, um, Tim, uh, why, why Bionic Dance? What is it about this particular channel that interests you?
1: Well, yeah, I think the the way that I was introduced to Bonnet Dance uh, first was that she did a response video to one of Bobby's videos. And I just want to say clearly that I am not Bobby Conway. Bobby Conway is the one that you see on uh, most of the One Minute Apologist videos. So I just want to be clear that I am not him. I think somebody said that in the channel. But yes, the channel is One Minute Apologist. Bobby Conway is the One Minute Apologist. Um, But she did a response video to one of our videos that we did on scientism, where Bobby kind of just quickly summed up the idea of scientism. And essentially, uh, I watched the video. She emailed, I watched the video, and then I started responding back. And yeah, we just started a a dialogue and conversation um, because of that, basically. Yeah.
0: Cool. So anything else you want to say in prefacing this uh, before we kind of jump into some video clips?
1: No, let's just go ahead and jump right into the first clip there
0: all right here we go this is bionic dance
2: so the kind of faith that i care about is the kind of faith that says god does exist it's the existence part i care about i interpret the data correctly and you don't i mean that's the only possible solution here that's the only possible interpretation because unless you have the kind of hard physical scientific data that a God was involved in any event, then you're just making stuff up. And that's what faith is. Faith is making stuff up. It's belief without proof. Because if you say that a God exists based on something that happened, but you have nothing within what happened to actually show that God's existence to have caused that event, then I'm sorry. You're full of crap. It's that simple. I'm saying we need to have concrete, undeniable evidence for things we claim exist. This isn't about trust. It's about existence, period. Does God exist? Because if God doesn't exist, everything else is out the window. I don't care. Neither should you. But if God does exist, then, then we'll talk about this other kind of faith that you're on about but not before. Science doesn't rely on faith. Science relies on evidence. Prove that your deity exists in exactly the same way with hard data and experimentation? Well, till you do that, I'm just simply not believing in it. Not gonna happen. The only way you can ever get conclusive evidence is to check and make sure. Run experiments. Find out. Yes, I have to have trust in those things you listed, but I don't for a moment trust my own conclusions so far that I'm not willing to be cautious, that I'm not willing to have checks and balances to make sure that disaster can't befall me if I'm wrong.
0: All right, Tim. So there's Bionic Dance. Um, there's the opening. Uh, there's a lot, obviously, to say here. There's a lot that, you know, kind of I have a knee jerk to, to respond, but I um, want to hear your thoughts. So what, what do you think about this?
1: Yeah. And I just want to reiterate, um, like I said, Bionic Dance and I have had over 100 emails exchanged between us uh, that led to an in-person conversation in late 2019 in California in a coffee shop. And, and I want to reiterate what you said, that she's a nice person. Uh, anything that we discussed here today is not an attack on her or her, her intelligence or who she is as a person. I just, I just want to be clear that I also might import some knowledge from those previous conversations and those previous dialogues. But I'll, I'll do my re- best to represent them accurately all right so i just want to make sure we get that out of the way before we dive in here
0: yeah and people should know that you actually did have a debate slash discussion with her i think on her channel right Yes. Um, yep and it was it was cordial it was it was straightforward but it was cordial and so um if not friends i don't know at least friendly adversaries in this and so um that's the spirit with which we want to do this so um give me your thoughts and reaction to some of this
1: Yeah, yeah, I I do wanna leave aside for just a moment the idea that faith is a way of knowing that she kind of indicated in the video. And we'll we'll discuss that more in a bit. But first I wanted to address the idea that science is the only tool or methodology to employ when it comes to existence. And and this isn't the case at all. Uh, We we do need to ask the question, uh, do we know anything that exists that isn't subject to the scientific method? And I know that you've discussed some of this on your channel before. So she states that um, she believes that we need to have concrete, undeniable evidence for things that exist. And in my conversation with her, one of the things that I pointed out, and we'll do so again here, is that there are the three fundamental laws of logic that are the law of non-contradiction, the law of excluded middle, and the law of identity must exist for science to even get off the ground. For example, she seems to indicate that we must be able to verify our findings through science, and in fact, I agree with her, and I, I think that you know you probably agree with her too, Braxton. But we we can't know that something exists if and not exist in the same way and in the same sense. If we can't know that in general, if we can't start that as a um, as, as a grounding principle, then. We can't do science. Without this metaphysical foundation, science cannot get off the ground. And this is a problem for her position because she needs those three laws of logic to exist in the real world in some meaningful way before she can employ them to do any sort of investigation in any sort of physical reality at all.
0: Yeah. So you're you're kind of pointing out. So she's saying, look, I need to basically be able to put it in a beaker and it needs to be repeatable. And, you know, these kind of things that very, very empirical scientific type stuff, which is common in the, you know, very empirical science driven West in the way we think we take in knowledge. But you're pointing out some things that are prerequisites for doing science that that don't fall into those categories. These are metaphysical truths that you can't put in a beaker like that. Right. That's the point you're making.
1: Right, yeah, and I think it's really important to talk about, because she she mentions this in the video, and she'll mention it again in the next few clips that we're gonna uh, take a look at, that it really comes down to this idea of existence. I want to know um, that things exist, and that she says that science is the only way that we can know that they exist. And so just by merely pointing out that things like the laws of logic and the law of non-contradiction and the law of identity must exist for, for us to be able to do science throws that out the window so there's at least another category of things that we can know exist apart from employing the scientific method
0: yeah there was uh someone here he is let's see uh someone mentioned just a minute ago roll out the metal detector analogy i don't know if you know (laughs) what they're referring to but there's a very well-known uh analogy for this very point and I'm trying to find it here, but yeah, here we go. Uh, bring out the metal detector analogy. Punch bowl haircut says, um, "Glad you're here." And uh, the, the way this goes is that look. If let's just say you have a metal detector and that metal detector represents the scientific method that we use in natural science and um, and and it detects this metal detector detects metal and it's great at detecting metal every time there's metal to gummit, this thing chirps and beeps and we're able to find that metal. And this is like the greatest tool for finding metal that we have now that's fantastic and everyone can look and say that's a great metal detector that's a great device for locating metal. But what we would not then say is, therefore, we have no good reason to believe that sand and water and trees exist, right? Right. You need a different sort of apparatus for that. You need a different detector. And likewise with science, we all agree that science done properly is an incredible tool, that it works, that it's helpful, that we've had incredible advances, the technology we're using right now, um, all these kinds of things as a result of science. But just because science works really good at studying the natural world doesn't mean that there's nothing else. Just like a metal detector doesn't mean there's not sand and water and trees and wind. So that's kind of what we're what we would first want to say back is. um, and, And of course, you know, the very things. And this is the point. Someone a moment ago said something like, no, you don't need metaphysics to do science. Well, here's the thing. You have to have metaphysical ideas as presuppositions to begin doing science. Otherwise, when you have an experiment that seems to undeniably to her to use her word, conclude one thing you can just say. Yeah, I mean, all the evidence seems to indicate that. So it's both that and the opposite of that, because we don't care about the law of non-contradiction anymore. Right. So so the, so those are some important ideas, I think.
1: Right. And I and agree. I, I want to refer to um, William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland in their book, uh, The Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview, I happen to. Have it right here with me. Um, they, they oh, that's gave, the one
0: they, with the—that's the one with the new cover. You've got the new yeah, updated version.
1: This is the second edition, and I'll, I'll brag a little bit. I do have JP Moreland's autograph. Uh, oh, here man. in my copy when wow. I got a chance to meet him a couple of years ago and <laughs> had cool. the book with me so, uh, but I do want to say that they give these five characteristics of an adequate theory of Existence and so I kind of want to just go through those real quick because I think it helps because she was talking about this idea of Existence and being subject to the scientific method. So if we're gonna say that anything exists, it, it should fall under or should have these five characteristics. It needs to be consistent with and explain what actually does and does not exist. It needs to be consistent and explain what could have existed but either does not exist or is not believed to exist, perhaps falsely by the person uh, advocating a given view uh, of existence. Uh, Number three, let me just make sure that I got this right here. Number three, a a theory of existence must allow for the fact that existence itself uh, must not be self refuting. Okay. So uh, the fourth one here a theory of existence uh, must not violate the fundamental laws of logic, which we just talked about up above. And uh, and the theory of existence must allow for the existence of acts of knowing. We must be able to know that it exists. Now, I think in in that book, what they do is they kind of go on and list a number of things that other people might say. is a theory of existence. And they're they're basically denying these things. They say that it it, it located in space and time. That is not a prerequisite for whether or not something must exist, uh, for it to be causally um, uh, efficacious. That is, that it's capable of being an efficient cause. Uh, Another one that they say is that it needs to be um, an event or bundle of events. Again, so I'm just just reading here off the page. uh, To be perceived by or to be a perceiver. to be a property or to be a secondary property. So those are some of the things that I think she employs in her theory of existence that are just denied, I think, by, by most philosophers or particularly uh, J.P. Moreland and William Lane Craig in this uh, in their philosophical foundations for a Christian worldview. So maybe Braxton, maybe you can uh, you know, kind of wrap that up a little bit for me there and, and kind of just help put some legs on that.
0: Yeah. So you've got basically you've got here some some qual- some qualities or some things that would be true of something that exists is basically what you're laying out there. And right. the one of the problems that results often is when somebody adds other things to that list that would, by virtue of their being added, exclude certain things that they would like to exclude, not to say that we're not to say that there's a like an impure motivation here. But um, because of their epistemology, you know, I I know we wanna come back to specifically what you're talking about, but I wanna branch off just a minute here and say, one of the things that I think happens a lot that I've noticed with um, the atheists I've responded to is that the epistemology itself is structured in such a way that it requires this sort of scientism or a soft scientism anyway, to get um, to any kind of knowledge claims. And so what happens a lot, and I've done a lot of responses to people like Matt Dillahunty who, who are very open about their epistemology, where you can really see the problems in it because they lay it out. And I think it's reflected in a lot of other um, YouTube atheists like this, is that what, you, what we want is we want a demonstration. And what, we don't know what that means, but it's going to be something either scientific or science-y. And we want it to be undeniable. Now, she said undeniable. That was her word. And when I hear undeniable, as someone who thinks about philosophical stuff a lot, I think, wait a minute, do you mean like Cartesian certainty, like to the level that I know I exist? We wouldn't expect her to say you have to know it to that extreme, right? Because we don't even know the right. scientific truths to that extreme. So it's not this Cartesian absolute 100% certainty. You're not, you're not putting that up as the bar. But, it, but it's not as low as the demonstrations that we've tried to give. We don't think they're low, but, but the atheist thinks they're low. So there's this big chasm in between 100% absolute certainty on one end, and what we're offering down here. Where is this mark? Where? Where? What do we have to rise to, um, to for it to be convincing? And of course, the legs have been cut out from underneath this to begin with, because often the atheist will uh, require that it be something that is. Uh, constrained by the, what natural science can study. And that's just a major problem. And so typically, and I think you're, you might go into this, it sounds like you might, that, that when they structure what would be necessary for existence, it includes other things that minimize what we can posit exist, right?
1: Right. Yeah, and and so I think one of the things that I know from conversations with her is that she she believes that the way that you and I might go about this is we might start with um, the idea that God exists or that the law of non contradiction non law of non contradiction uh, contradiction exists or something like that, and then we try to work to find things that support that. And she would say that that's kind of a wrong-headed methodology, but I don't think either of us are starting with that, at least not, we don't start with the assumption that God exists and then try to find evidence that fits that explanation. But I think that we are observing the world around us. And again, we'll kind of talk about this a a little bit more after the second clip. Um, I think that we're observing the world around us, and that's our conclusion. And so real quickly, I think that there's other things that exist that are not subject to uh, this type of scientific inquiry that she suggests. Yeah. Morals or uh, numbers. I mean, maybe Braxton, maybe you have a couple others uh, other than just. Well, like, you know,
0: typically we think about when we talk about morality, we we think about moral duties, things that we should do or shouldn't do. But there are also values that we might use quite apart from uh, moral things like um, whether something is good or bad. Yeah, morally speaking, but also not morally speaking things that you should do or shouldn't do. Um, These these sort of things, you know, things like that justice as a concept, which is somewhat related to ethics and morality. But justice is something you can't really put under a microscope. And so these are these are value laden things that are very much uh, not not the purview of science. Now, what what you could do and what a lot of atheists do, I don't know what she would do is to say, well, we could and not to take this off too much in the moral direction, although this is a great example, I think. Is they'll say, well, okay, look, you can take, we could come up with a subjectively chosen goal as humanists or something like human flourishing or human well-being, And then we can say there are objectively better or worse ways of getting there. The problem is as long as they'll offer an offer, offer as an example, the game of chess, the game of chess, it was subjectively designed, but then there are objectively better or worse ways to win the game of chess given these rules. But if you don't want to play chess, well, then those rules are irrelevant to you. And if I don't want to accept your subjectively chosen goal of human flourishing or well-being, like perhaps some psychopath might not be interested in, well, then your rules are still subjective and irrelevant to me. Your goal, because your goal is subjective, so things like better, worse, good, bad, should, shouldn't, anything like this—these are ideas that that can't be put under a microscope like that.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. I think you're. I think that's a really good point. And. Uh, Let's maybe move into kind of more of this uh, dichotomy between science and faith. She, she says kind of in that video, prove your deity exists with hard data. Without that, she says that she will not believe. She claims that science provides checks and balances on what is real. And I don't know about you, Braxton, uh, but I think that you and I would agree that myself and a lot of other Christians, we think that science is a really great methodology for finding those things, kind of like the metal detector that you were talking about earlier. And I would say that there is no conflict between uh, Christianity as a worldview and the scientific methodology. But more, the more fundamental question is whether or not the scientific methodology is the best way to know that God exists. Should we expect hard data for God's existence? And I think on one hand, yes, and on another hand, No. So we can go into that if that's where you'd like to to take the conversation next.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, um, you know, in terms of hard data, let's okay. so let's just try to get as close to something sciencey as I think people like her would like us to go. So you and I would love the philosophical arguments and, and, you know, the Kalam and contingency arguments and things like that. Um, And this is also a philosophical argument, but, you know, we have design arguments, teleological arguments that are arguments, but they are pointing to to an inference from the natural world that we get information we get from science. So while you can't put and maybe this is what you mean by yes and no, you can't really put God in a beaker, but you can uh, and you can make testable claims. Even you can say like the intelligent design community does. We should expect to see X, Y and Z. If there is an intelligent designer, and um, you know Stephen Meyer and others have done great work on that, where you say, "Hey, look, we should expect, we would have expected to see something that looks like um, a computer code or a DNA code or a language and a system right. to copy that." That's kind of a repeatable thing. As we encounter new organisms and new um, facts about the physical universe, and go to other planets and all those kind of things, we should expect to see elements of design. If there's a designer, that's repeatable. And it seems to work, but it is still true that you can't we can't take the, you know, the spiritual or whatever and put it into a test tube that that much may be true. Is that kind of what you're getting at with? Yeah, yes. I and think, no.
1: Yeah, I think that, that that that's a good that's a good I'll, I'll kind of try to put a little bit more, you know, kind of meat on them bones there. But I do want to say before I do that, that we we, we, uh, we want to talk about faith, and I think it's important because of the way that Bionic Dance kind of comes at her worldview, as she stated in that video and as she's going to uh, talk about in these upcoming clips, to kind of undergird a lot of this talk about faith and uh, what it means and if it's trust or whatnot with some of these. So before we can even kind of get to the biblical definitions or kind of parse out some of the words, we really have to take this kind of holistic approach. And so you're exactly right. Like what you were saying is, is true. I would say yes, because we can use logical inference just like you said uh, to conclude a cause from an effect, right? But, but here I would point to the 13th century philosopher and theologian Thomas Aquinas's five ways. And they all start with testable, repeatable observations and they employ valid logic, uh, making them in a sound argument which means that the conclusion must be correct, that we do not need uh, independent scientific verification of the conclusion to be confident in its truth. And so the verification is employed in the premises, knowing that the premises are true. That's where the testing has happened. That's where the verification has happened. And this is how logical arguments work, both, both inductive and, and deductive arguments work. And so going on to say, no, like you said, we can't put God in a test tube. Uh, we can't discover him in the lab. But I think that that is more the point that, you know, kind of maybe after we watch this next clip, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of dive into that a little bit more in depth there.
0: Yeah, we need a different we, we don't need the metal detector. We've got that. It's good. We need something else. Right. All right. Let's uh, let's take and that could be philosophy, history, uh, experience even. But let's take a look at clip two and see what she says.
2: We're talking about taking claims and checking their validity. I challenge you to show me how faith can do that. What does faith demonstrate which can be verified outside of our own thoughts and feelings? Even if the scriptures don't explicitly say to avoid science, it does tell you to have faith which is about as unscientific as you can get. And the followers of Christianity will often have to reject science in order to maintain their beliefs, will call science heretical because it can poke holes and show flaws. So Christians are often anti-science because they have to be in order to stay Christians. Science deals with the physical world. It's a method of examining the physical world and experiments with evidence to verify hypotheses made about it. That's all. Religions make claims about the physical world. The Christian God has allegedly done things to the physical world which should lead evidence which we can study, which we've done. And with a notable consistency, has either shown the Bible's claims to be false or has shown that claims don't require a God to have happened. As you say, faith doesn't let us know any damned thing. Faith doesn't offer answers, only unfounded beliefs.
0: Thank you, Bionic Dance. This is now a PG-rated episode. <laughs> but, go, but go ahead, uh, Tim.
1: Yeah, I think the thing that I wanted to focus on here before we get to the way that she seems to be sliding between definitions of faith, which, again, we'll talk about, is the idea that God is reported to interact with the world, our planet, and, and it ought to be detectable in a way through science. So in uh, Bionic Dances and in our, our correspondence and in this clip, uh, she said that God interacts with the world and therefore should be susceptible to the scientific method. But re- science relies on repeatable, the repeatability of events. And when variables are controlled for and the situation is the same, you will get the same result. And so that's a little bit what she's talking about. But Man, I just want to put a plug in for Braxton here. Braxton, you had a really great conversation a few weeks ago on the Unbelievable program about free will. And this is something that you and I haven't discussed, but I would say that God is a free being and he is not under any obligation to act in the same way when the variables are the same. And so I think her assumption that uh, things would be exactly the same uh, under the same conditions, and that God would act the same under the same circumstances uh, is not a definition of God that I would necessarily adhere to. Now, we can say that God is the author and sustainer of physical reality and of the uh, you know laws, the physical laws. So in that sense, perhaps, uh, you know God might be doing the same thing over and over and over again. But not in the sense that she's talking about where we're trying to set up different, uh, you know, kind of God experiments in that sense. She's talking about things like the flood or the resurrection of Jesus or the feeding of 5,000 and other miracle claims. So Braxton, maybe you know of a way that we could set up a repeatable scientific test to verify the miracle claims that are in the scriptures.
0: Well, I don't think so. And that, of course, is the point. But what I do think is uh, to go back to what I said a while ago about good design arguments is those are repeatable in the sense that we can set up a hypothesis that um, we should expect to see design or certain types of design in certain circumstances in nature. But in general, in the sense that I think she most wants, um, can we repeat the parting of the Red Sea? I don't think so.
1: Right, yeah, and so again, so I I mean, I would come at this from a those are historical events that we would use the historical methodology to, to look at those types of evidences. We would look at the writings we have and the reports and the testimonies and so on and ask what's the best explanation given the evidence we have. And I'll be honest, Braxton, this is not an area of, of mine that I dive into as much uh, in my studies and apologetics. So it may be more of your area, the you know, historical methodology. So maybe you might be able to speak to more of that than I would be able to.
0: Well, it's only my area insofar as I've had to prepare for it for debates, and it's been a longstanding part of the apologetic endeavor that my ministry is based on. But, yeah, I mean, you know, everybody knows, well, that's not fair. Everybody who's interested in worldview discussions and has been watching for very long knows that, um, look, apologists will not just point to inferences that we can make from science, like I've mentioned a little bit here today, but also philosophy, like you've been talking about, and historiography, And so with historiography, what you would do is you would say, all right, we're going to look at what we have good reason to believe. We don't ever get to absolute 100% certainty, but we we have criteria for historical investigations. And you'll see this in all the books on historiography, whether they're Christian or otherwise. Uh, There's a great video on this channel where Dr. Jonathan Pritchett just takes one after the other book and throws it over his shoulder because it has all these things in it and teaches how to do this. But, you know, these things are things like, um, um, does does the explanation have explanatory scope? Does it cover a lot of the details? So like when we look at the resurrection, we want uh, if it, you know, to look at what really happened with what is you know, purported to be a resurrection. We want to know, does, does the explanation we're offering have scope? Does it answer the largest number of details? For instance, um, someone might say, well, you know, there's this thing called conversion disorder that someone who's persecuting a group of people for their beliefs suddenly becomes overwhelmed with guilt, and then they adopt the beliefs that they have, and that looks like what could have happened with Paul. Well, okay, maybe that would explain Paul really well, but it wouldn't explain the empty tomb. It wouldn't explain the women followers of Jesus or all these other facts that we have. So it doesn't have explanatory scope. You want one that has explanatory scope, explanatory power. It fits easily, not like a puzzle piece that you have to try to force in there. Um, it's le- it's it's less ad hoc. You may have to, pres- you know, kind of like a triangle that's mostly there, but you're missing one, you know, part of a line. You kind of have to fill it in. You always have to do that with historical details. I, it looks like this is what happened. We, we can't know for sure. You know, but you want to be less ad hoc. You don't want to make stuff up that, you know, aliens came and, and raised Jesus from the dead or something. And yeah, so totally. these are some of the, these are some of the things that you would use in historical study. But as you can see, those are different. Uh, those are different criterion and tools than you would use in uh, the natural sciences.
1: Yeah, definitely. And so I, I, I do want to point this out maybe before we get to, to clip number three. And I just want to say, Jim, thank you so much for the super chat uh, and the nice things that you said. I'm sure Yeah, let's Brad go ahead and throw that up there. That. Yeah, Jim, uh, Jim, Jim really This awesome. Jim.
0: Jim Tim is somebody that we that I call our channel angel because like almost every time he shows up he gives a super chat and, and we just appreciate that so much Jim and um, he says he hasn't heard of Tim before but you know Tim you've kind of now you're kind of launching out more and doing your own thing you said at the top of the show but but you've kind of been the, the guy behind the scenes making some of this stuff happen.
1: Yeah, and, and that's where a lot of my ministry has been for a number of years. Um, I'm I'm comfortable being on camera and sharing and I've done a lot of the research, but really my goal is to try to continue to help other uh, people that are in ministry and lift them up and, and get their message out there. So,
0: Yeah, but if you want to see, um, you've got some videos on One Minute Apologist. If you go to the One Minute Apologist channel, there are some videos there where Tim is teaching.
1: Yeah, 9 Forty something, nine forty-three and nine forty-five, something like that. In there, I can't remember exactly. So, um, right. And, and I, I also want to say before we get to this next clip that. Uh, I think that the just the category of miracles that we're talking about uh, isn't universally applied. And I will point to my friend Jonathan McClatchy here where Jonathan McClatchy and I know that even in his most recent conversation debate with Matt Dillahunty will try to shoehorn him into a view that he doesn't hold just by merely putting all miracle claims in the same category of then you probably think this is true. So so Dilahani does this a lot where he'll say, so do you believe all the miracle claims in the Quran, or that those that are found in the Hadiths, or those that are found in, in other religions? And Jonathan is quick to point out that, no, you have to look at the evidence, just merely saying that because God exists, miracles are possible, that doesn't then, we can't then conclude to say, all miracles are then probable, or all miracles definitely happened, but we know that maybe just one miracle happened, that miracle could be evidence for uh, the existence of God, but that doesn't mean that we affirm every single miracle claim or every single report of a miracle from every single historical document. We have to look at kind of the broader context like you were talking about earlier.
0: Yeah, so like um, with with the beginning of the universe, we would use um, an argument like uh, the Kalam cosmological argument to show that there's good reason to believe that God is the best explanation for the beginning of the universe. Therefore, the beginning of the universe is a a miraculous creative event. Uh, we have good reason to affirm that miracle. Like with the resurrection, we we think that we have good reason, and we have videos on this channel um, that that we we go into all the details. We think there's good reason to believe that a miracle happened there. Now, with some miracles, like the walking on water or the turning the water into wine, uh, how we get to those is indirect. We we don't right. have the access to those that we would like to have, so that we so we we find out. Okay, are these authors say of the gospels? Do they seem to be giving us reliable information? And it seems like they do. The biggest miracle claim in the Gospels is the resurrection. And if we can trust them on that, and then we plug in some other things that get us to, we can trust them on these other miracle claims that we don't have um, the sort of evidence for that we do the resurrection. So you're right. Uh, And and so we would apply that to things like uh, any miracle from any other religion. Do we have good reason to believe the authors in whatever sacred text? Do we have good reason to believe and trust what they're telling us? And can we confirm any of these miracles uh, using those texts or using philosophy? And if we can't, then we're not required to accept those miracles.
1: Right. No, that's good. Yeah, I I think this is a great time to bring in clip three and we'll kind of get to some of the nuts and bolts about the, the word faith and how it's used and how she's using it and how she understands it.
0: Sounds good. Let's do it.
2: So the kind of faith that I care about is the kind of faith that says God does exist. It's the existence part I care about. Science doesn't rely on faith. Science relies on evidence. If you know me at all, you know that my biggest problem with religion is believing in it on faith instead of on facts. And it's faith in God's existence that's at issue here. As you say, faith doesn't let us know any damned thing. Faith doesn't offer answers, only unfounded beliefs. Noseflash genius, if you have evidence, you don't need faith. That's the whole point. We're talking about taking claims and checking their validity. I challenge you to show me how faith can do that. What does faith demonstrate which can be verified outside of our own thoughts and feelings?
0: All right, Tim, um, so take it away.
1: Yeah, so it's clear from this clip that she thinks that faith is a way of knowing, and she juxtaposes faith and fact as if they're in the same category. Uh, And one of these clips pulled from a video that she kind of debunked uh, Tim Barnett, and I I say debunked loosely there, and Tim Barnett (laughs) works with Stand to Reason, a good friend of yours. Uh, I have yet to meet Tim, but I've conversed with him a number of times in similar settings as this. But he lays out kind of the biblical definition of trust or confidence in something based on evidence. And she says that that isn't what she cares about. So she agrees that it's a valid definition and a valid usage of the term, but she doesn't think it applies to Christianity. So given this, to me, it seems that she is sliding between different definitions of faith. On the one hand, she thinks it's a way of knowing or demonstrating something like you would with science, right? But then on the other hand, she thinks uh, it uses it as kind of like a belief system or a worldview, but she also agrees that it could be used as trust, but then quickly says that we have nothing to trust that God actually exists. And those are her words, not mine. She uses the word proven, I'm not using that. She's using that. Proven through science and only done so through faith. Again, it's a little bit strange. So I think this is where we can kind of start to unpack some of this stuff uh, a little bit here. And I'm, I'm going to just read kind of a portion of um, Blake Gunta's website. His website, beliefmac.org, is, is really, really, really good. It has some great resources on this. So I'm going to go ahead and, and just kind of pull some of this up because I don't want to misquote what Blake has on his website. I think it's really good. He says, regardless of whether the Bible is trustworthy or complete fiction, the consensus among Christians and non-Christian academics seems to be that the Bible's usage of the Greek word translated faith is intended to mean something akin to trust, not blind faith. He goes on to give, uh, you know, kind of two... She cites two um, resources, the Oxford Companion to the Bible and the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. Both of those kind of affirm his initial um, reading of that. And he goes on to conclude that this, a correspondence to the Greek word translated faith, or pistis, uh, which carries with it the notion of being evidentially, uh, or carries no, no notion of being evidentially Unfounded. So I think, again, with with all of the context in place that we talked about earlier, it's clear that she slides between these these usages of the term of faith. And I think that that's one of the important things that faith can have multiple definitions. Faith can have multiple uses. Um, I'm thinking of things right now like um, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Uh, that is a book by Norm Geisler and Oh, what's that guy's name, Norm Geisler, and what's, what's that what's yeah, the guy's name? Yeah,
0: yeah, Tank Furyk or something. Oh, Frank yeah, 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 Turek. yeah, yeah, that's yeah right.
1: Frank, <laughs> Frank Turek, that guy. Yeah, 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 from from some, some ministry, cross-examined or something like that. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. Frank's a good a good friend. Uh, love love that, that whole thing, but uh, their, their ministry and whatnot. But this idea of, of, of I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, let's maybe replace that word faith with something else. I don't have enough trust or confidence in the evidence To be an atheist, I don't have enough facts to be an atheist, so that wouldn't make sense, right? Like, that's not what he's talking about. Um, I don't have enough blind faith to be an atheist, that that doesn't necessarily make sense either. Uh, So, when we're really using that terminology, I think we're using it, and I think Frank's using it in the sense of, a trust and confidence based on evidence and he's saying uh you know the conclusion of that book surprise is that uh, there isn't just enough evidence pointing to the absence of god or the the positive belief the, the positive worldview that god does not exist and we could have a long discussion about the terminology atheist and what it means, if it means lack of belief or whatnot. So I don't want to pigeonhole anybody. I don't well, want I don't want your channel to get blown up by saying that's not what atheist means. Right. Oh, like, it's going to happen.
0: Understand. It's going to happen anyway. I have videos and this not and we have many very fair minded <laughs> atheists who watch the channels. But the fact is. I've had videos where I have said very clearly, I understand that atheists prefer most of the online atheists I deal with prefer this definition. So that's the one that I'm going to presume for this discussion. And they'll still say it, but, um, but, but you actually make a good point here. This is something I want to say. This is a little bit of a soapbox moment. All right. we're, We're going to talk about, and we, you've kind of bridged the gap here about what biblical faith is, right? Well, we have been saying this, we, the online apologetics community, has been saying this for so long and so publicly and in so many ways and in so many places, most notably perhaps here over the past year or so when uh, Michael Jones of the channel Inspiring Philosophy had his discussion with RN Raw and made it abundantly clear with multiple sources. I've done videos on it. I'm sure the one-minute apologist has done videos on it. And yes. it seems like, so I have to believe, and, and in the video, there's a little bit of a tell When she says, I'm not interested in trust or whatever she says, she mentions trust. You know, you just said Mm -hmm.
1: that.
0: So she's aware. The online community is aware of what we understand the Bible to mean when it says faith. So here's my here's my um, congenial request to um, friendly atheists. If you would like us to use the word atheist the way you prefer when we're dialoguing with you, Would you please do us the favor of allowing us to define our own terms? And in fact, we're not even defining the term. We're kicking to the biblical definition that's been there for 2,000 years and saying that's the one we prefer, regardless of how people in the pews might use it today, regardless of the colloquial definitions that you or others might adhere to. The Bible has this in mind. That's what we're using. So would you please do us the return favor of letting us define our own terms?
1: Yeah. And I think you're exactly right. That's a great parallel. I'm glad that I set you up for that pitch, yeah. uh, slowballed it for you so you could knock that out of the park. That's that's, that's a really, really apropos in this uh, sense. Right. So in the in the video that she was uh, kind of critiquing uh, Tim Burnett's uh, usage of it, she immediately went to this idea where he was saying that I have faith that my wife is going to be. Um, She's not going to cheat on me. I have faith that my wife is who she says he is. And and he kind of used some of those examples. Right. But then she immediately jumped to, yes, but you know, your wife exists. And I don't think that that's the way Tim was using it. Uh, And I'm not speaking in the third person. Tim Burnett was using it. He was using it that it is based on evidence he can trust what he knows about her and so based on evidence we can trust what we know about God one of those criteria might be his existence or his willingness to do what he says he's going to do or that Jesus actually rose from the dead so there's a number of different pieces that could be encapsulated in that but I think in general that faith is not a way of knowing and it is not an epistemological tool it kind of comes after the epistemological tool, right? You you know you're looking at evidence, you're taking in different data, and then you're concluding that God exists, or Jesus rose from the dead, or, or a number of other claims within Christianity, and then you're going to live your life based on that. Now, you could disagree yeah. with my conclusion. You could say, I don't think that that's good evidence. I don't like that evidence. I don't think it's... Um, you know, historical evidence, it's not convincing Mm. evidence, all of those different things I have had atheists say to me. And that's fine. We can talk about then kind of what those pieces of evidence are and why I think you should trust them and why I do think that they, um, you know, kind of demonstrate what they set out to demonstrate. But again, you can't then throw out the whole definition because you don't agree with the evidence that I'm saying. You can say, faith is trust based on evidence. And I disagree that you actually have evidence, but that doesn't therefore... Change the definition of, hey. yeah. It's like let's let's give them what they want,
0: Tim. Let's say okay, you think it's all fiction, right? Okay, we we understand that. So let's talk about something we know is all fiction, the Lord of the Rings universe. Okay, we know that that's fiction. We know that Middle Earth is a fictional place, and let's say that there is an elfish word in the Lord of the Rings, and and we and uh, I you know I don't I can't think of a word that we could make up, but let's say we had a a, a word uh, that's Thingamabob or something. And I'm and we're arguing that in the Tolkien universe, Babab means this. And and then the, the person who's arguing with us says, no, I think it means this and I'm going to keep using it this way. No, but look right here. Don't you see? It's defined this way. And when caught, our interlocutor then says, well, it doesn't matter because the Tolkien universe isn't real to begin with. Well, that's that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about within this realm. This is how the word is used. It's irrelevant whether you think that Middle Earth exists or not. So that's a that's a secondary conversation we can have. And I think that gets to the point of of what we're talking about. And this is another little soapbox moment that that I want to. This has been on my heart lately. <laughs> it's this last night I was having a discussion on Twitter. Never a good idea with an atheist, and uh, it was a fair-minded discussion. But the but the atheist was saying oh for the days when monotheism was simple and you didn't have to worry about one god with three persons you know and all that that's obviously made up and contradictory and so i responded oh for the days when it was all newtonian physics and we didn't have to worry about quantum physics uh clearly that's made up based on science science fiction material and the and the atheist says well yeah but but quantum mechanics is real it's like it's like that's secondary to the point that we're making, which is simply sometimes things that seem a little complex are real. Uh, that's just the way it is. And likewise here with this point, faith, as we're saying, like like you're saying that uh, that Tim Barnett was was pointing out is, look, I've got my wife. I've, I have all this evidence, good evidence to lead me to the conclusion that I should trust her I, I can have confidence in that she's going to do what she says she's going to do because of all the evidence that I have that she's going to act that way. Uh, likewise, much more simple. Uh, this is a common analogy with a chair. I, I, I don't just know that the chair is going to hold me because of faith. I, I have good evidence to know that chairs tend to hold me, that people making chairs have to follow certain standards. I have good reason to believe from looking at it that it looks like it's going to hold. So then I trust that knowledge that evidence and sit down in the chair and it holds me Um, that's what we understand faith to be most of the time biblically speaking is that we we have good we have good evidence we here we go we have faith we trust that God's going to do for us in the future what he said he was going to do based on what we have good evidence to believe he's done in the past
1: Right. Yeah. And, and so I, we would be remiss if we had a conversation about faith and didn't kind of bring in some of these um, kind of classic gotcha verses. Right. So maybe you and I can kind of tag team this uh, together as we've been doing thus far. But one it's of them you is. Is the Hebrews eleven uh, verse oh. right? So I, I brought it up. It's the faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and the conviction of things not seen, right? That's so what that's, I have. That like oh right yeah not seen. There you go, blind faith. Things aren't seen. But there's two problems with this. Number one, seeing is not the only way to know that something exists or that to know something at all, right? I think hopefully we've demonstrated that throughout this whole entire conversation. So see isn't uh, you can't put in know there you can't change the verse to say the conviction of things not known or the things that we have no idea or we just have to trust it blindly so mm-hmm. that that doesn't make any sense right we can know things without necessarily seeing them and again i would point back to earlier in the conversation we talked about thomas aquinas's five ways and using things like deductive arguments and inductive arguments and um even even uh, explanations to the to or um Conclusions based on the best explanation of the evidence. So I I would point to some of those things. But then here's the real kicker. If that's the case, right, if it really meant that we're supposed to not believe things, right, based on reason and evidence, why does the rest of the chapter give evidence? Why is the whole rest of Hebrews 11 pointing out all of these people that are evidenced, right? It's for the you know the the jewish reader at that time uh pointing to all of these different things look at all of this past evidences that well, you have to and believe. even
0: if you know I've typically heard people come back on that and say yeah but I don't have any reason to believe any of that stuff is real that's not the point the point is it gives you examples of people who exercised faith trust conviction mm-hmm. uh on the basis of really great evidence abraham right. for example who multiple times heard God speaking to him and other examples that that's considered like an incredible text of faith there where you have all these individuals who had a kind of evidence that you and I would love to have like visual certainty about it. And they had faith. Well, hold on a second. I thought faith was a blind leap in the dark, you know? And I think Tim, I know you have more you want to say there, but I think one of the, one of the reasons that people get tripped up is because of, I think it's the King James version, or maybe there's several versions that say that faith is the evidence of things not seen and they say all oh, right there see this feeling in your heart is the evidence of what you don't see but you gave the the rendering of the passage that i actually think makes the most sense and i don't know how someone would miss this faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen well that's just what you and i have been saying we're saying yeah. the faith is so we, we believe god's going to do what he said he's going to do it's the assurance of the things we hope for the conviction not the blind faith, the conviction of the things that we don't clearly see right now, based on, as the rest of the chapter shows, what the Jews in that context or the early Christians knew God had done in the past. And for you and I, we can look to arguments and evidences in addition to scripture and say, here's what we know he did in the past, Here's because we have this good evidence, so we can have assurance he's gonna do for us in the future, just like with Tim Barnett's example of a wife or a husband that you trust on the basis of evidence.
1: No, no, you're exactly right, and I think the key phrase that I want to highlight for the audience is that it's the future, right? All things in the future are uncertain. We don't know with 100% certainty, and we could do a probably a whole other video, you might even have one, on Hume's problem of induction and why this is an issue, right? But we can know that the future is going to be like the past because we know that it was designed and that it's upheld by God himself. And so all future possibilities are without certainty. And that's where he talks about hope in that verse. And, and so I, I think that that, you know, again, we could go on and on and on and talk about this, but,
0: but, but hope, but hope doesn't mean that we, that we don't have good reason. Right. I mean, like, exactly. I hope my wife never cheats on me. But I have some darn good reasons to believe she won't, right? So that's, right. Yeah. and when God, and when you're talking about God, um, who is the very definition of goodness, I have really good reasons to believe he's not gonna be unfaithful to me. But real quick, um, yeah, pistis is the Greek term for this. And Daniel Apologetics, thank you for that incredible super chat. Um, and uh, it's used for faith in the New Testament. Not one New Testament scholar defines that as blind faith. And yeah, real quick, uh, if you'll permit me, Tim. Um, you know, I've, I've mentioned this on the show many times, but you, I have in front of me uh, the number of times that Pistis is used in every book uh, in the New Testament. Um, also, uh, we have this early source from um, Theophilus of Antioch in his letter to Autolycus, book one, chapter eight, where he actually gives examples. Now, this is great because this is this is extra biblical and it gives you an understanding. And it says he says, do you not know that faith is? Now, this is faith it is the leading principle in all matters for what husbandman can reap unless he first trusts his seed to the earth or who can cross the sea unless he first entrusts himself to the boat and the pilot. And what sick person can be healed unless he first he trusts himself to the care of the physician? And what art or knowledge can anyone learn unless he first applies and entrusts himself to the teacher? If then the husbandman trust the earth and the sailor, the boat and the sick, the physician, will you not place confidence or trust in God, even when you hold so many pledges at his hand. In other words, even with all the great reasons you have, uh, all the great things he's done for you, why don't you trust him? So clearly in the, um, you know, early on in in the Greek language, we understood this to be trust, confidence, conviction that is on the basis of evidence. And this is why it is, as you pointed out, so um mistaken to 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 think of faith as the way that you know in in that, in the sense that she's describing it's what you do in response to what you know or what you have good reason to believe
1: yeah exactly yeah i mean i couldn't have said it better myself i mean there's again there's those extra biblical um, usages of the term uh, in, in the, the contemporary languages of that, and, and I think we've kind of summed it up. I mean, we could go on and on, but I think at this point um, we, we've used a lot of that, and we can apply the idea of seeing being not the only way we know to the passage of uh, Thomas, our, our friend the doubting Thomas, right, who when he says, I mean, I got to put my hands in the wounds and I got to, you know, touch Jesus and put it, you know, uh, and, and see him. And Jesus says this really awesome statement where he says, blessed are those who have not seen, but you have seen. Right. And so we're saying, oh, right there. It, it, yeah, you got to have blind faith. And again, we'll just go back to the same explanation that we used here with Hebrews 11. But that's not what it's saying. Seeing isn't the only way to know things. And we've we've talked about that three or four times already. So.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I think a good way to think about it is like this. Let, you know, I, when I was pastoring in uh, Middle Tennessee, we I lived near uh, a place called Rock Island State Park, which is where Cliffhanger was filmed. But yeah. um, uh, we used to go out there all the time. It was so awesome. It was like a natural water park. And we would go cliff jumping. So you jump off a cliff. It's like 40 feet down. You look like a guy who's done some cliff jumping in your day, Tim. <laughs> but, uh, but, but so w- when you do that, so blind faith, I guess, um, would be kind of like, this wouldn't be totally blind, but it would be like you're standing a football field back from the edge of the cliff. You don't know what's on the other side and, and just running and jumping off, just, right. just, just you know trusting nothing, just hoping that you'll live. And there could be knives or swords or anything at the bottom of that thing. But, yep. uh, but, but, uh, biblical faith would be more like, um, you have good reason to believe you have, you know, uh, the water, you have testimonies from others in the past who've done this. You have, you have good reason to believe you'll be all right, but there's still that moment where you have to trust. And anyone who's ever cliff jumped knows that when you, when you finally step off that cliff, it, everything in your, every fiber of your being says, do not do this. This is wrong. But when you do it. Um, you have to exercise trust. And I would tell you what, there's a lot of people, I think, who see the good evidence to believe that Christianity is true and trust that God will do what he said he'll do if they'll trust him. But yet they can't bring themselves to jump off the cliff because it's just they can't get past that moment that you have when you go cliff diving, uh, so to speak. So I don't know. Maybe that'll help. I think there's a difference between jumping blindly off a cliff and having good reason to believe you'll be all right.
1: No, I think you're exactly right, and we can maybe close by just saying uh, I'll mention a few resources that I thought were really helpful. Uh, I already mentioned beliefmap.org from Blake Gunta. I would also suggest listening to you. if anyone is interested in this, or you've had a conversation with an atheist that has brought up a number of the similar uh, topics. There are probably six or eight different videos on the One Minute Apologist channel talking about faith and the definition of faith. There's a video on scientism again, which I mentioned earlier that Bionic Dance responded to, and one of the best. Conversations conversations about this topic that I've heard was um, Professor Tim McGrew from Michigan University, I believe, and Peter Boghossian from Portland State University who wrote a book called Manual for Creating Atheists had a fantastic dialogue about this very subject on the Unbelievable radio show. I think it was in June of 2015, if I'm correct. So you can head back to the back catalog of Unbelievable Justin Briley Show, which you were on a couple of weeks ago. and You did fantastic yeah. there. Thank you.
0: Um, I appreciate and, that.
1: Yeah, and I would check out that, that episode with Tim McGrew and Peter Bergosian because it was a really, really good episode. They used a lot of different examples and kind of hit this from a, a few different angles as well.
0: Well, Tim, um, we certainly want to tell people that they, they, they can check out more of your stuff. Um, h- how do they do that? Right now, is it just go to One Minute Apologist?
1: Yep. One Minute Apologist. Please like and subscribe. One Minute Apologist. You can check us out on Facebook as well. One Minute Apologist uh, slash Bobby Conway on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Um, And we have a link in the description to this video too. Yeah, fantastic. So that would be a a great way. We're coming out with some brand new content on kind of some of the racial things that are going on in our culture right now. Uh, We just did a really great video with uh, David Wood. I don't want to spoil what the topic is, but you want to subscribe to the channel because within the next week to 10 days, a video with David Wood's coming out. and it's really good. I, I'll just love to awesome. leave it there, but I, really
0: I, your face is telling a story when I hear David Wood, I know it's going to be fireworks. So, <laughs> yeah. um, but listen, we, we, we love you, Tim. Thank you for coming on and don't you go anywhere because I'll come back to you once we in the stream. But, um, I just want to say to everyone else, thank you so much for showing up today. It means the world to me. I hope that you'll also uh, subscribe to this channel. There's a lot of people that show up for these streams and who watch the videos who are not subscribed, and I know that because YouTube lets us look at the comments now and know who's a subscriber and who's not, so come on. Um, I subscribe to a lot of atheist channels. Uh, you atheists, it won't cost you a dime, and uh, we'd really, really appreciate it, and certainly you Christians, we, we hope that you will. One last thing before we go. Um, I do want to invite you, uh-oh, I may have lost it here. I want to invite you all to check out something new that's a resource from our school. This is a book called The Panorama of the Old Testament. It's by Thomas R. Rogers. He is the former president of Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. This is a fantastic book that's been used as a textbook at other Bible colleges and seminaries. And it's a summary of each uh, book of the Old Testament, as well as providing a timeline that will be most at home probably among uh, very conservative theologians. theologically speaking very conservative thinkers but um, it's on amazon now i hope that you'll check it out i did the forward for it and you can see a little glimpse into what it was like if you care when i was a young pastor first trying to wrap my mind around some of the deep theological truths in books like this so the panorama of the old testament by thomas r rogers hope you'll check that out listen i look forward to uh to seeing you all again we're going to have our friday live stream as usual and uh i don't know what we're going to talk about yet but it's going to be great and we're also going to have by the way we have a verse by verse through the book of Genesis, where I go off on every theological topic you could ever imagine, um, there's something like 30 hours of it already available. There's a playlist for that on this channel. So uh, it's with apologetics in mind. So it's a Bible commentary audio, so you can listen to it while you're driving, working out, whatever. And it's uh, and and we, go, we where there are things that look like contradictions or difficulties for Christians. Uh, We talk about that, and I think it'll be fun for you. I hope that you'll start with the first episode and watch all of them. Listen, I've enjoyed being with you. This has been a blast. I know you enjoyed, Tim, and we'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.